This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're talking, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. As devastating as COVID-19 has been, there are some scientists around the world saying, I told you so. Infectious disease experts had expected something like it, and they're also raising the alarm about the next pandemic. So we'll take a look at that. And when much of the nation is seeing heat waves, It's easy to forget the fall is, you know, just a couple of months away, which means the start of another flu season. And medical experts, they are already concerned about having floods of patients with co-infections, you know, being infected with the flu and the coronavirus. Talk about a combo. Will doctors be able to distinguish the difference between the two viruses without good COVID-19 testing? Tens of millions of students across the U.S. just weeks away from the uh, weirdest school year yet. Virtual semester means kids will be home, kind of like spring. Parents will have to either stay home or find somebody who can watch them, you know, make sure they log into the online classes. And now remote learning has forced many parents to consider even giving up their jobs. College students getting ready to head back to some of their campuses early to quarantine. We'll talk with an incoming freshman about her unusual introduction to college life. And a group of Pac-12 football players have organized a campaign demanding safety steps. They're threatening to sit out the season. If those demands aren't met, we'll talk with a player who's leading the charge. The coronavirus is proving itself to be extremely contagious and, for many people, deadly. But what about the next pandemic? I I know you're thinking, (laughs) let's get through this pandemic. (laughs) Give it a rest, guys. Yeah, let's not go to the next one. But... You know, there are people who are thinking about that. And given all the problems we've had managing this one, what if the next virus, and we know another one will come our way sooner or later, what if the next one is far deadlier? Dr. Christopher Woods, executive director of the Hubert Yergin Center for Global Health at Duke University, also chief of infectious diseases at the Durham VA Medical Center. So we've been saying this is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, you know, 100 years, last one, 1917, 18. But maybe that's not the case after all. Uh, Well, we've certainly been on the lookout for new uh, infections, and they continue to emerge. There have been... uh, Uh, Tens of these new viruses that have emerged over the uh, last uh, several decades, and it just happens that uh, with COVID, we had a a unique combination of uh, situations that led to uh, a highly transmissible virus uh, in a um, a community that was uh, highly susceptible uh, and uh, unfortunately, we did not contain it in its earliest uh, phases, and uh, thus the, the pandemic. And it, that certainly uh, can happen again with uh, other viruses and potentially viruses that are uh, even more deadly than this one is proving to be. Well, I mean, do you think that, uh, I mean, of course, nobody wants one that's deadlier than this one, but if that were to happen, do you think that, that people, especially in this country, would perhaps, t- those who are not taking this one seriously, might take that kind more seriously? Because it's hard enough getting a lot of people to wear masks and to stay six or more feet apart from one another. Uh, it, it just seems like there's this almost willful disregard of reality. Yeah, one of the great frustrations, of course, has been the, some of the 
the politicization of the of our public health response here, and uh, that's quite unfortunate. And one would hope that that wouldn't happen uh, in the future when we're facing similar situations, uh, and we'll let the science guide us. And one point of encouragement to everyone now is that uh, we know that uh, the, the recommended guidance of wearing masks, social distancing. Uh, and uh, good hand hygiene, et cetera, uh, and cough hygiene, et cetera, are, are going to reduce the the the, the ongoing uh, pandemic uh, and the speed of it. And that's beginning to happen. I actually have a very positive outlook for where things are now, and I do believe the message is getting out uh, even to our most resistant and willful group, as you alluded to. Uh, will they be more receptive to uh, a more severe uh, disease. Uh, we can uh, hope that that's the, the circumstance. We tend to be uh, of short memory as a species in general. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when the next one happens, we may well uh, respond uh, uh, as slowly. I hope that's not the case. There's been many lessons learned uh, and many technological advances that have happened uh, as a result of our response. And I think that will actually improve uh, the response uh, technologically in the future. Where so, does the next one come from? Where do you look for them? Yeah, so there are uh, a number of hot spots around the globe where we tend to keep an eye out for these new uh, viruses, and it may just be a new strain of influenza, or it may be another new coronavirus, or it may be a different uh, virus, or it, what we may be facing is just the emergence of more resistant bacteria. Having uh, good surveillance in those uh, areas where um, there tends to be lots of people uh, and enter, uh, a um, reduced presence of public health and a lot of interaction with, um, with animals in particular uh, those are places where these viruses uh, and, and more resistant bacteria tend to emerge, and so we focus our efforts there. Dr. Christopher Woods, Executive Director, the Hubert Jurgen Center for Global Health at Duke University. Doctor, thanks. Flu season, you remember the flu, is uh, going to sneak up on us before we know it, and we are still, of course, dealing with the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic. Will addressing both the flu and COVID-19 at the same time pose a challenge for healthcare workers and what should people be concerned about and which concerns are maybe you know overblown dr evelyn balagun is medical director for inspira urgent care and occupational health she spoke with kyw's matt leon to answer our questions about flu season and what it's going to look like this year for the upcoming flu season what are you guys expecting expecting it to be worse than usual lighter or is it hard to tell what are you bracing for we are expecting that it's it will be a significantly um, impactful flu season. And so really what we're bracing for is the combination of a flu season where annually we have about 400,000 people that get hospitalized for flu-related illnesses. Um, and this would be in the context then of the ongoing COVID pandemic. Uh, so really what we're bracing for is a healthcare system that's already strained by the impact of COVID and now having to respond to flu during the fall. 
Do you think flu vaccine numbers will be affected by the pandemic? More or less people getting vaccinated for flu than you see in a quote-unquote normal year? Annually, approximately only half of Americans receive the flu vaccine. Um, And this is unfortunate. Uh, The CDC's recommendation is really that anyone six months of age and older is supposed to get vaccinated. There's certainly within that additionally certain groups that are higher risk that we really do certainly strive or or push that message to them. That would include persons with chronic diseases such as diabetes and um, uh, diabetes, COPD, heart disease. Uh, So this year we're really hoping that that message gets across to all persons. And again, those people with the chronic diseases that we're seeing are more impacted as well by COVID, but they get out there, they hear, hear the message and get vaccinated early and as soon as possible. So how are you guys preparing for kind of this, you know, double barrel attack of the ongoing pandemic and a a flu season that could be worse than normal? So, you know, really our our preparedness for for the regular flu is essentially an almost a year-long process. Each year, Inspira plans for the upcoming flu season, starting in the late spring to early summer months. Uh, This includes reviewing our outreach efforts uh, about what was most successful the prior season, and also identifying opportunities for better engaging our employees and patients. These efforts you know, usually include timely ordering of vaccines and uh, development of educational materials. The efforts this year will continue to follow that model. Um, and again, we're, we're starting the messaging much earlier. We're, we're pushing to our employees and our patients the importance of making sure that they're protected from influenza as a way to avoid the added burden of a season where we would be facing both influenza and an ongoing COVID pandemic. How much of a challenge will it be as far as the symptoms people are presenting and, you know, whether it's the COVID, whether it's COVID or it's the flu. I mean, obviously there's the test, but just from kind of the surge of people that are presenting, I would guess in some case, similar symptoms, how much of a challenge is that going to be? That will be a challenge. Uh, you know, certainly as you, as you mentioned, both are, both COVID and influenza are respiratory illnesses. And so they, they present similarly, um, headaches, cough, fever, body aches, um, and What really then matters is making sure that um, anyone that has symptoms gets to their provider on a timely basis. Um, Though they have some um, similarities, they also have differences. The differences being that uh, persons with COVID are more likely to experience symptoms of loss of sense of smell and taste. So for some people that might be that differentiating factor if they're wondering, is this COVID or is this influenza? Uh, the, The steps to take for both really would be to make sure that you reach out to your provider as soon as possible. And again, uh, back to that message about making sure that you get vaccinated for the flu as soon as you you are able to, so that you're more protected against the flu and are less likely to have a complication of trying to decide if it's one or the other. Do we, is it possible to get both at the same time? Can you test positive for COVID and also get the flu? Uh, That is actually very possible. And at the start of the pandemic, we were still winding down with our our flu season. Um, And so we we did see some persons who came in and had co-infection. And so, again, going forward, that's the concern for the fall, is for those persons, if we can really 
make sure that there our communities are vaccinated against the, the regular influenza, that um, we're less likely to have a picture where people are susceptible to co-infection. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a vaccine yet for COVID. Um, you know, certainly there, there are some uh, studies in development um, that are in the works, but we do have a vaccine for influenza and um, the risk of co-infection would be less for those persons who are able to get out and get vaccinated early. There is a dire economic warning out today. Parents who cannot work from home might be forced to give up their jobs and by the millions in order to care for their kids who are stuck at home with remote learning. It's a potential disaster in the making. Ron Insana anchors the market scoreboard reports, a senior analyst and commentator at CNBC. So, Ron, Israel opened up its schools. They're out with a warning saying, do not send your kids back. It has not worked out well here. So where does that leave us? Well, not in a good spot. I mean, in, in addition to the fact that we, we have these, you know, recurring hotspots around the country and even here in New Jersey and New York, we're starting to see some initial flare-ups even before school starts. So to the extent that there's going to be online learning or partial online learning um, throughout the week and staggered classes, this is going to leave some certainly two-income families at a great disadvantage because somebody's probably not going to go to work. And because of the fear among those who would otherwise be employed as child care workers about contracting a virus from a kid who's going to and from school, not a lot of child care is available. So if indeed um, people start staying home, whether it's the 20 million who are currently home just because of the lockdowns as they exist, or some number even less than that, it's going to have a notable impact, particularly in the absence of any meaningful relief from, from the U.S. government. And, and that could hurt the economy, maybe even tip it into recession. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a ripple effect in different areas, right? Because number one, people yeah. who would need a job, they maybe not they might not be getting one because someone's going to have to stay home with the young kids. And maybe they thought, okay, I can squeeze by through this spring, right? It's going to be okay. We'll get them to fall. We'll send them to school. Well, no, now that's not happening. And then um, if you don't make as much money, you're not out there spending it anyways. Correct. I mean, and, and listen, we, we've gone through this partially. My, you know, my oldest is out of college. My, my, my middle son, uh, between two girls, just graduated high school, but he's taken a gap year. And my youngest is about to be a senior. Now, she's supposed to go back August 18th. Um, supposed it's a boarding school. They're supposed to be in class pretty much all the time. My bet is the first kid who gets sick or the first teacher who gets corona, they're going to have to dial back. And I suspect that's going to be true in a lot of different places where teachers' unions are going to be adamant about safety. Parents are going to freak out a little bit if their kids come down with it and could pass it on either to them if they're at risk or to their, uh, you know, grandparents or, or someone older who's at risk. So I think this is, I, I think the jury is out on this, and I do think there's more likely than not going to be a negative impact uh, on the economy going forward, because by the time we get into mid-August and, and early September, I don't think a lot of this will be fully resolved. Well, I mean, so let's say, uh, as a lot of medical experts think is, is, is possible, maybe even probable, that we're stuck in this situation that we all find ourselves in, even if there is a successful vaccine for maybe another year, maybe longer than that. Um, you know, from an economic point of view, forgetting just about the health issues, from an economic point of view, what does that mean? 
Well, everyone's expecting, you know, after we had this record decline in, in gross domestic product or economic output in the second quarter of nearly 33% annualized, that was a 9.5% quarter-to-quarter decline. That means close to $2 trillion in lost output just in three months. Now, we're expecting the economy to rebound maybe as much as 20 25% in the third quarter. If we stall out, that won't happen. And we're going to be staring at a very, very difficult economic environment. Uh, and again, that's going to put more and more pressure on the federal government to to extend enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, find ways to to bridge the gap so that people, whether they're small business owners, whether they're you know workers who have high exposure to to customers directly, can, can make it through this period. And, and you know, short of a vaccine, if we can get some sort of bulletproof therapeutic, it would be an enormous bridge to get us through this issue where we take serious illness, hospitalization, and death off the table for those who are most at risk, um, that then, then you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But we're, while we're getting closer, we're, we're certainly not quite there. Ron Insana anchors the Market Scoreboard Report, senior analyst and commentator at CNBC. I saw a tweet from somebody earlier today saying, I'm doing an interview right now about being a working mom from home. And my kid just ran in crying, saying, I couldn't find you. Where are you? Also, when is lunch? (laughs) So that's what it is like being a working mom at home right now. Move-in day to the dorms for college freshmen is usually a very exciting time. You get to meet your new roommate. You can pick a sorority or fraternity to rush. And, of course, there are the parties. Lots of parties. Never party. Didn't know. Don't know what you're saying. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah. Well... None of that is happening this year for the incoming crop of freshmen. For colleges that are welcoming back students, they've assembled large teams to think through quarantine plans and contact tracing in case of an outbreak, as well as when to shut down dining halls and even classrooms and how to weigh the risks of sending students home. Jessica Service is from New Jersey, just outside of New York City, headed to the University of Pittsburgh as a freshman next week. So, Jessica, this is probably not how you planned for this to go, but how is it going? Um, It is, thank you, first of all, but it is definitely stressful trying to plan for every unknown possibility. Um, I have no idea how long I'll be on campus for. If so, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Will I be allowed out of my dorm? Will I be stuck in it? Planning for every unforeseeable element is definitely wild. Yeah. So what has the communication been like? What's the school saying about how this is supposed to go? Um, in what regards to what? Like, like move-in day. Take me to move-in day. You have a roommate or is it just you in the dorm? So any dorms that were um, that had communal bathrooms were changed from either doubles and triples to singles. So personally, I don't have a roommate. I'll be living in a like a standard freshman dorm. And then any students who weren't given on-campus housing were moved to hotels, which were doubles, and those students will have roommates. But they actually staggered move-in to be um, over, I want to say, like 15 days of two weeks almost, starting on August 11th and ending on August 24th. So they're only moving in 1,500 students at a time. I had the first. I'm, I know I'm moving in really soon, August 11th, but it's it's staggered. So I, I'm curious uh, how much this impact, uh, the the virus and the pandemic, is really going to have an impact on you as a college freshman. I mean, right now, of course, you just graduated as a high school senior. So 
be honest. No one's going to come and arrest you, at least I don't think. Uh, have you been diligent about wearing masks with your friends? Do you social distance or, or do you hang out and go to parties? Uh, to the best of my ability, I've been trying to wear masks, at least in uh, public spheres, uh, like out to restaurants when they opened or out. Um, trying to think of where else I've been out by beaches. Um, I was not the best with my friends. Definitely was not at huge parties with, you know, 100 kids. I've seen those. Um, that was not my speed. But small gatherings, I wasn't the best. I uh, don't know what that's going to look like in college next year. Socially, <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's take that. And I mean, you've been pretty good. Not the best, but pretty good. And people hang out with their friends. And you keep it to a small group. Maybe that's what you try to do. But then you go to college and someone's going to throw a party, right? I mean, you already see them on Instagram if you just flip on through. Yeah. I don't know what that's going to look like. Um, talking to peers, everyone has a different take. A lot of people are like, screw it. I'm going to go. I don't care. It's my freshman year. And a lot of people are really concerned. I know kids not going, uh, not moving in because they're afraid of or they're cautious about other students not following guidelines. Everyone well, has a different take. Well, Jessica, are you personally... How old are you now? I'm 18. 18, okay. Are you personally concerned uh, if you get the virus, or are you concerned more for others, you know, that you may go to school, pick it up, and then uh, older people around you may get it from you? Which is your concern, if any? Both, I want to say, but definitely more for public safety than my own personal safety. Um, hearing the way it's affecting people. How? But, oh, go ahead. No, sorry. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just curious. Have you thought? I mean, have you ballparked it? How long do you think this you're going to be on campus? Like, do you think the school makes it through the year, or could some outbreak happen and they send you all home by the time it's spring? On, I would, I would bet that they call it early and they send everyone home early. They've already chosen to go in a bridge semester, so I end. Thanksgiving as opposed to at the end of December. Uh, they push back their start date to the be- uh, middle of August as opposed to like the end of August. But honestly, I think I'm going to end up leaving earlier. Do you feel, Jessica, as if you've been sort of robbed of something that considering you're 18 and you're starting your college career, it would almost be sort of your a kind of your rite of passage? Do you feel as if you've been robbed of that? A little bit. I wouldn't say robbed, but it's definitely frustrating knowing that I'm not going to have the standard freshman experience. Knowing at the end of my senior year was sort of cut in half. I know this was, you know, one person's doing. I can't really blame everyone, anyone, so to speak. But it's definitely a frustrating feeling. Um, I'm just hoping that we all, everything sort of settles back to normal yeah. by the end of this year. Well, that's what everybody's hoping. We can move on. Jessica Service from New Jersey. Um, Good luck. Going to Pitt. Thanks so much. Good luck. College football is, for now, planning on playing a full season for the fall, but the student-athletes themselves, who are responsible for generating tens of millions of dollars for their universities, they are drawing a line in the sand. There's a large group of college football players organizing under the banner, We Are United, and they are demanding much stronger health protections for the season. These players would also like some compensation for assuming the risk. Nick Ford is a junior at the University of Utah, offensive tackle for the Utes, one of the leaders of the We Are United campaign. So, Nick, I guess you're saying you're not being heard. They want you to play pretty much like normal, and this is not a normal year. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you can go ahead and compare it to, you know, what we've been talking about, um, the NFL. The NFL has the NFLPA, which is the NFL Players Association. And, you know, the, the college college level, the NCAA, we simply don't really have a platform to come together and, you know, unify and, you know, discuss all of our, you know, concerns. Well, tell us briefly what the concerns are and what you want to remedy those concerns. Uh, you know, Overall, our concerns are just the health and safety of our players, um, whether this be football players, whether this be other athletes. You know, um, the amount of revenue and everything we bring to these universities is a great amount, and I think that they should be able to identify us as an entity at the table and be able to negotiate with us and, you know, let us be able to define, define our terms and, you know, what we think is right and what we think is safe for us. Uh, you can probably speak to your situation better than some of the other schools, but overall, what have you found? Do they expect you still to come and travel, even if other students aren't on the campus, and just kind of do things as normal? And what protections are there for you guys? Um, I would say at the University of Utah, I first like uh, you know thank Coach Witt and everyone for taking a good job uh, taking care of us and everything. But um, as of protocol and everything, you know we're being tested. Um, and the, there, there's a problem within the testing that the Pac-12 players see is that there's no uniformity in it. There's some some um, schools are getting third-party tested where they actually have medical professionals come in and do the test, and there's other schools that don't have that same opportunity where they have the students doing it to themselves, which can lead to faulty results if they're doing the test incorrectly. So that's a really big concern. And another concern is if we come back and also the general population of students come back there's going to be a lot of space for contamination within not only the football team or the student population but our communities uh you know universities will turn into you know like an epicenter for a new spike of covid and many other issues and it'll spread into the community and can possibly kill people and you look at the state of california and they're they're still in shutdown and everything but they're permitting their students to play which i mean what's going to happen when utah travels over to, you know, California or if a California school travels over to Utah, I mean, our case is going to rise or they're going to be, you know, there, there's a lot of things that haven't been answered or been addressed, even though there are apparent concerns for them. Okay, so there clearly are medical concerns. Now help me understand the, the other part of this is the desire for compensation uh, in order to assume the risk of playing. Why compensation financially uh i mean if you if you look at it the the amount of revenue we bring in for you know universities conferences and you know the ncaa institution itself is is, is a, a majority we bring well it's you know so it's, it's a large sum amount and you have all these players who you know come from low income housings or you know unfortunate situations when in reality if they were able to get a you know share of what's out there and, you know, the universities or the institutions and conferences are able to help out the kids, you know, they might, that might be generational wealth. I mean, if they're able to take, you know, whatever money it is and send it back home to their family and take care of their family, you know, that's, that's generational wealth and it's going to take care of a lot of people. And that's what a lot of people's problem is, is the fact that they want to try to take care of other people and take care of themselves and, you know, not have to worry about, do I pay my gas? Do I pay 
for food? Do I pay for this? Because, you know, sometimes things get tight and you can't always afford to sure. get things but, but and Nick, also help people out. But, Nick, isn't that, though, uh, a, a separate issue from the pandemic? Uh, I mean, you can make the same financial... Because that's a fight that's been going on a long time. Right, right. You can make, and, and in fact, that, that that argument has been raised, as Mike just pointed out, uh, for quite some time now about compensation. So I, I'm not quite understanding why that's part of the concern about the pandemic. Well, so when, when this movement came out, we decided that we were going to not only address the pandemic, but we we're going to address things that needed to be addressed. The, you know, you're focusing right now on the COVID situation and the compensation situation. But at the same time, we're trying to protect all sports and also involve, you know, racial injustice and find equality within that. So, I mean, this is just a gateway. This happens to be a gateway time to be able to talk about all those things you know we haven't been identified as an identity on the table with the NCAA and our conferences but now this gives us the leverage you know ability to go up and talk and say hey you know this is a real situation that you guys aren't taking care of but at the same time there's a list of other situations that you guys really haven't sought out to help us with there is always venom on the internet that gets thrown around. There is some being thrown at you guys saying, look, there are so many other people that wish they had the opportunity to play. If you don't want to, they can. Uh, how do you respond mm-hmm. to comments like that? You know, you, you got to take it with a grain of salt. You know, every everything you do in life, you're not going to be able to please everybody. And, you know, when, when people make comments like that, you know, it, it really does hurt me because we're not necessarily doing this to sit out for the football season and be ungrateful. We're just standing for what's right. I mean, there's, you know, people who are less fortunate in, in different situations where they're taken advantage of. And, you know, we, we feel like we're currently being taken advantage of. So we want to be able to at least use our voice and be able to negotiate to try and fix that within ourselves. Nick Ford, junior at the University of Utah, offensive lineman and one of the leaders of the We Are United movement. Nick, thanks for talking to us. Okay, you ready, everyone? Mm-hmm. Let the disinfecting wipe hoarding begin. Again? Again, Clorox CEO warning that his company is seeing a severe shortage of antibacterial wipes. In fact, he doesn't expect grocery shelves to be fully stocked with Clorox's disinfecting wipes until next year. California-based company usually sets aside extra supply for flu seasons, but with overwhelming pandemic-led demand, it's all out. Clorox says it's seen a six-fold increase in demand for disinfectants. I will use them judiciously. You can listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Stay well. Buy some wipes. And and if you buy, don't eat them, whatever you do. Not for that. Not tasty. Not tasty.